0: Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him podcast. I'm Dale.
1: And I'm Tamara.
0: And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get
1: is a podcast.
0: We finally got it right.
1: Whoop, whoop. It only took you pointing your finger at me to remind me. I'm
0: like air traffic control <laughs> Where my over line here. is.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate your help. The You're audience the will
0: never know how many takes are left on the cutting room floor.
1: I mean, under a 100, so. We're good.
0: <laughs> but not that many under 100. <laughs> not
1: that. Not that many.
0: Well, you know what I want to talk about today?
1: I'm sure it's something very exciting and encouraging.
0: I want to talk about hell.
1: Was that your like creepy voice? or
0: No, nah, that's just me getting really close to the mic and saying, hell. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. You know, well, it's, it's a Friday why? night
0: as we're recording this.
1: This is what we we're, like to do. We're on feeling night.
0: vivacious. Yes. And so we thought let's have a good engaging discussion about, about hell. About H E double hockey sticks.
1: Yeah. So why do you want to talk about hell?
0: I'm actually pretty excited about this conversation. I mean as excited as a person could possibly be when you're talking about hell because Because I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions about mm. hell. And actually, there is more than one view that people in the church have traditionally had that you could subscribe to. And if you didn't know that, then you think that the one view that you were raised in is the view, the only biblical view. And there's actually a couple of different options of of what it might be based on a careful reading of scripture. And so when I first kind of started discovering that and studying it, I was like, wow, I didn't realize that the view that I was raised to believe wasn't the one biblical view, but it was one of a couple biblical views. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helpful because when you're, I don't know, guess kind of struggling in your faith or you're kind of grappling with this idea of hell, it's good to know that there's multiple views out there that are biblically supported and all of them can't be true. Um, but you can weigh and sift those things. Rather than feeling like here's the one view I have to accept or I have to walk away from this part of my faith or abandon Mm. the Bible or whatever it might be. So I wanted to alleviate some of that tension by kind of opening it up to kind of pulling away some of the misconceptions of what hell is about and then laying out the views and kind of hopefully doing so in a way that's charitable to all of the views. uh, And then allowing you, dear listener, to decide which one sounds best to you.
1: And this is helpful as, again, you were talking about just maybe grappling with these things in your own faith. And there are certainly a number of theological views or theological topics that this is the same circumstance where you might have only heard of the one way you can understand a theological topic, and you might struggle with that. And you have to understand, is it just that this is difficult I'm human, God is above my own thoughts, and His ways are above my own ways, so this is just what it is, and I need to pray about the Lord really affirming that in my heart and affirming that affirming that in my mind as I read it, or are there other options that are biblically supported? And in regards to the topic of hell, I have only heard one view in my church, even in my time of studying in undergrad and even in our um, seminary as well, there was only one view that was ever taught to me. And our hope on this podcast is to present the three views that have historically been accepted throughout church history. And you'll see one, our personal opinion on it, it doesn't have a whole lot of biblical legs to stand on, but the other two have quite a bit more support than I think evangelical Christians have ever given room for. And so we want to go ahead and dive into those three, and the first one that we're going to talk about is the one that is probably the most familiar to you, the one that you've been taught, the one that you've heard over and over again, and is supported by just about every evangelical Christian.
0: Yeah. So as we start going on each of these views, we'll kind of describe the prominent people that hold to that view, some of the guiding principles, and then some of the biblical support or lack thereof. And so like you said, there's three views. The first one that we're going through is kind of like the view, and it is something called eternal conscious torment. And so prominent people to hold this view. Basically everybody, yeah. (laughs) Basically most, this is the vast majority opinion within Mm -hmm. evangelicalism and really within Protestantism at large. This is the, the majority view of eternal conscious torment. It's kind of the guiding principles of like, what is eternal conscious torment? Well, it's just that, like hell is eternal. It is conscious, you know that you're there, and it's torment. And so the guiding principles are that the, the human soul in itself is intrinsically immortal, meaning that like when you're born, like your soul has a start date, but it doesn't have an end date. And so the only thing that changes is your destination. Are you going to spend eternity with Jesus or are you going to spend eternity away from Jesus? And so if you're spending eternity away from Jesus, then that is hell. You have not come under the grace of Jesus. And so if there's eternal life with Christ then there's eternal Bad life without Christ. And as Thomas Aquinas put it, sinning against an infinite God is an infinite offense which deserves an infinite punishment. And so we want to go through a lot of the Bible verses that eternal conscious torment uses to kind of support this view. And kind of evaluate each one of those. I think some of them or are, are stronger than others. We'll kind of start with the less strong ones and kind of build to the stronger ones that are a little bit harder to get around. Uh, but there are a number of different verses that kind of point to this idea that yeah, hell is eternal, is conscious, and it is not a place you want to be. It's torment.
1: Right. So one of the first verses we want to bring up is quoted quite a bit by Jesus in a number of his parables, and you can find it. In multiple places throughout Matthew, uh, Matthew 8, verse 12, Matthew 22, verse 13, Matthew 25, verse 30, but it's also found in Luke chapter 13, verse 28. And that is the wording, it's kind of, I think it changes in Luke just slightly, but it's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's his understanding, according to this theology of hell, is that there's going to be this constant weeping and this constant gnashing of teeth until he, until eternity, Like it's going to continue to just be torment that is everlasting. And the people that are there are going to be weeping and just grinding their teeth because of the agony and the, the pain that they're experiencing in hell.
0: Yeah, so the reason why eternal conscious torment people use this verse because there seems to be that there's this consciousness of it and uh, it is torment. I think the only component that's missing here is is the explicit statement that it is eternal. eternal. Like are these people gnashing their teeth until it's down to the nub and then they're continuing to gnash? What if you lost your teeth before you died and you have no teeth to gnash? This is, this is <laughs> I'm, yes. vivid imagery. It's metaphorical language. And so we can take it as such. But also there is the absence of the fact that this is an eternal state of being when you're cast out into that outer outer darkness. That's another phrase that's used in a lot of Jesus's parables. You'll be cast out into the outer darkness where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so there isn't necessarily a definitive, this is a forever kind of a state.
1: Well, and another sort of reason that this is the first verse we're starting with, because like you said, we're going to go from the ones that are sort of the weakest to the strongest in this theology of hell, is this is a parable. All parables contain metaphorical language, like the whole parable is a metaphor. And so it's hard to really know what exactly is being described through this metaphor in relation to the way that we understand hell. Certainly, we can see that it has something to do with judgment. And again, referring to this outer darkness, but what exactly does that mean and to suggest that it means this eternal conscious state of torment might be a little bit more difficult to stand on because, again, it's a parable that is a metaphor, and we don't fully know how to take this metaphor.
0: Yes. The next one is Mark 9, 48, and this is kind of similar because it is another metaphor, yeah. it's another parable, and Jesus refers to hell as a place where the worms... Uh, eat them and do not die, and the fire is not quenched. And so that's in Mark nine forty eight, but it's actually a quotation from Isaiah sixty six twenty four. And so it's like, again, this worm will not die. It's going to eat on flesh, and the fire cannot be quenched. That seems to be like an eternal kind of ongoing thing. The fire can't be put out. The worm is not going to die. And so that's used as support. But then also for this one, it's kind of the same thing because like a worm— The worm isn't the one being judged. The worm is eating the one who is judged. And what do worms eat but dead things, so things that are already gone and dead. So that doesn't seem to imply consciousness. And then when it's talking about a fire that cannot be quenched, it's not necessarily a fire that burns forever. It's just a fire that could never be put out. So if I say, uh, we're sorry, we couldn't put out the fire in your house,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and you look and there's this smoldering heap of ash. The fire is not burning anymore, but it was a fire that could not be quenched and it destroyed what was right. in its path. And so that's not necessarily re- you know, definitively saying that there's going to be this eternal conscious thing going on that's continuous, but there is a finality to the judgment in that it's irreversible. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be what that verse is talking about. Another one is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and this comes in Luke chapter 16. And the parable is about a man, uh, a rich man, who uh, sees this beggar, Lazarus, and he passes him by and he doesn't help him. And then when he dies, he finds himself in torment. And then he sees Lazarus, who has also died, and uh, Lazarus is not in torment. And he, he says, Lazarus, help me out. And basically the message is, Lazarus can't help you out because you lived your life in life and now this is your death and you are uh in torment and you are in anguish according to Luke 16:23 and 24.
1: Yeah, but the the issue with this parable is the rich man is not in hell because there would have been this intermediary state known as Hades and hell is where people go as this final judgment. And that's what we're really talking about is hell versus Hades. And so it's important to understand when we look into scripture, there actually is this distinction between Hades and hell. So Hades is an intermediary place that people go if you're not in the grace of Jesus and you haven't come to a place of salvation. And hell then becomes this final judgment. So we're not sure if Hades and hell look the same. They might, they might not. But to take this parable as theology for hell breaks down a bit because it's not actually talking about hell. It's talking about Hades.
0: Yeah, and so Hades was was and is the intermediary between now and the final judgment. So Jesus comes back, all the dead are raised to life for the final judgment. Then we enter the eternal state where there is the eternal heaven, new heavens and the new earth, and then there is hell. Before that, everyone's kind of in, in their Hades. respective holding tanks <laughs> whether that's a place of comfort, yeah. you know, no, you know ind- Paul says to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Or if you're in this kind of Hades place, which is not uh, a comforting place, the, and this might what be what Jesus was referring to when he's talking about this place of the outer darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Would be is Hades. That, yeah, is that, the, yeah. well, it's not clear whether it was mm. or not. It could be, it could not be. Um, It could be that Hades and hell are functionally very similar to one another in the way that you experience them, Mm. but not necessarily. But we do know that in this particular situation, Lazarus – or not Lazarus – the rich man who didn't give any help to Lazarus, he's in Hades, which is not the eternal hell. So that's where that one gets a little bit tricky. Um, But one that really is tough to get around – is Matthew twenty five forty six, And this is in the parable of the sheeps and the goats. And this is talking about, this is talking about the final judgment.
1: Yeah. It's Jesus clear in this parable that it's talking about final judgment. And he will
0: separate the sheeps from the goats. The sheeps obviously go to heaven and the goats go to hell because goats are friggin' nasty. Dale has a weird I thing. Hate he hates goats. Goats. I hate goats. It's weird. It's biblical. Mm, okay. Jesus is sending the goats to eternal punishment. As it says in Matthew twenty five forty six, they will go away to eternal punishment. The goats will go away to eternal punishment. Why
1: are you yelling at me? Well, don't worry. But we the righteous, want, I don't the sheep, want any goats. Don't worry.
0: The sheep will go to eternal life. And so this one's interesting because you see this parallelism. Eternal punishment, right? eternal life. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're mirroring one another Mm -hmm. and they seem to be kind of functionally operating as equal opposites.
1: Yeah. And the last verse that we want to look at in this eternal conscious torment theology of hell is revelation 14 verse nine through 11. And another angel, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, So this one...
0: <laughs> Isn't that some crazy language? You you will drink the wine of my wrath. Yeah. Pour it out in the full strength of the cup of my anger. <laughs> I'm going to say that to my son the next time he messes me up.
1: Oh, gosh. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> so this, one, this one's just hard to make sense of in general for a number of reasons. Obviously, the language, as Dale said, <laughs> it, it's very dramatic. And... That's because it's in Revelation and this type of language, it's apocalyptic in the way that you read it. And so there's a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of um, imagery involved, and I think we, we clearly see that in this verse. So it's hard to really figure out what is happening, and it's just not very clear in this verse who is the one that is going to be in this state of eternal torment. And it's just difficult to know how we should take this and really how John had intended us to take this, if it's literal or if it's figurative or even if it's just something that was, he was referring to within the first century itself and how that actually would be understood for readers like us thousands of years later and what he's really trying to say about hell as a whole,
0: right? Yeah. So, is he talking about people who receive the mark of the beast on their arm or on their forehead? Is he talking about anybody who wasn't in the grace of Jesus in this moment? Uh, it's not really clear. But the the phrase that really sticks out that makes this one hard to get around you know apocalyptic or not, metaphorical or not is this the phrase. You know, there'll be no rest day or night. Hmm. Uh, These worshippers of the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark in his name, and so there does seem to be you know some kind of eternal conscious state of that that's hard to get around this is the one that's probably the most slam dunk in just terms of like literal reading but then again it's revelation so it's (laughs) it's apocalyptic it's metaphorical it's you know got a lot of really strange language you're talking about dragons and you know weird looking angels and you know all kinds of you know strange imagery Um, that may be literal, maybe not. Um, A lot of it, I think, is is meant to be taken metaphorically. uh, But which parts of those are metaphorical and which are literal? It's tough to know. So this one is kind of like a uh, maybe so, maybe not. So those are the verses that are in support of eternal conscious torment. And again, this is kind of the main view. And it has some solid biblical backing. And it also just has the the benefit of tradition that um, Mm. for the better part of mm, about... I don't know. 1500 years. It's been the majority view. And uh certainly since the reformation it's been the yeah. majority just vastly majority view. And so um when everybody's reading scripture the same way, um there's something to that. There there is something to that that that's there's a reason why it's the majority view and has been the majority view for over uh, a millennium. But the next view which is um, probably the weakest view. This is a view that I would say, mm, ah, maybe don't go with this one. So that's the caveat um, off the bat.
1: Yeah, you're polite by saying maybe. I would suggest it a bit more strongly.
0: Yeah, this one goes in the opposite direction. Yeah. And this view is universalism.
1: In regards to prominent people who hold this view, probably the most popular person that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, would be Rob Bell. And really he... He described this view in a book that he wrote back in 2011 called Love Wins.
0: Did you ever read that one?
1: Um, No, but I read a lot of articles that were upset about it.
0: I did read it. It was a very convoluted book, but it was basically universalistic.
1: Yeah. So, like I said, he's pretty much the only mainstream person you probably would have heard of who holds this view.
0: And probably the reason for that is once you hold this view, you're no longer in the camp of being an evangelical. Mm. So uh that's probably why most of the people that uh, I was reading like, oh yeah, I don't know, really know that person. I don't really know that person because they're not really in evangelical circles because yeah. This is not an evangelical view in any regard. Um but there there are arguments that that people have made for it.
1: And some of the guiding principles for this view of what are the, like, main thoughts behind it. And one of the biggest thoughts I would say is that every human soul is eternal, and certainly a loving God would not actively torment people he created in his own image for all of eternity. So really, this view focuses a whole lot on the love of God, which... We can't disregard, obviously, that's all throughout scripture and the fact that he made humanity. But this view really leans on the aspect of God's love and saying, how could God, who created man and he created him in his image and he loves them, how could he then submit them to eternal torment?
0: Right. And many who would call themselves, you know, quote, Christian Universalists, uh, given the Bible passages that, talk about judgment that you know many of which we just talked about in the eternal conscious torment view uh, many of these universalists because of that they still hold to the idea that there is some period of punishment in the afterlife but they say that it won't be eternal it's i guess it's more of like a, a purgatory kind of situation where it's a purifying fire mm-hmm. uh kind of a thing and so at some point um it'll come to an end and everyone will eventually come under the promise of salvation in jesus and so When looking at the Bible passages that talk about eternal judgment, you know, you got to find a way around that because if the judgment is eternal, how does it not eternal? Yeah, like
1: how do they answer those questions? Right.
0: So there's kind of a reinterpretation of that Greek word, eternal, uh, aionios. It it can mean literally to be forever, so like eternal, Um, but there's this other... Kind of understanding in the Greek that you that you could take from that word "aionios," this word "everlasting," that kind of means you know age long or enduring for the age.
1: So there is an end.
0: It could imply so. It's like age long, uh, you know, enduring for the age. It implies a really long time, but it isn't necessarily infinite in its time. And so they can imply that that there could be an end to that time at some point in the future. Uh, and so the word eternal, it speaks more to the qualitative aspects of that age more than it does the duration of that age is the tact that they're they're taking with it. I've always kind of understood that word to mean both at the same time. Mm. I mean, particularly when you're looking at the gospel of John, uh, John does this with a lot of words that mean two things at the same time. Um, but they're basically saying like, take the one meaning out of it. It doesn't mean the forever one. It just means enduring for the age and the the qualitative nature of that age.
1: Yeah, and there are a number of scriptures that they would look to to support this view. Again, having justified their view and the ones that speak to the language of eternal torment. uh, Dale having described the way that they would understand verses that talk about eternal torment and punishment. But the verses that they have that would support their view, uh, the first one is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And they really focus on this word all in the beginning and the end of it. So if all die, that is all of humanity. That is everyone who is tainted by sin. That is everyone who has been affected by the fall because of the choice that Adam made. And then Jesus gets onto the scene and all are made alive in him. And so their understanding of this would be all are tainted. So, of course, all are made alive. Like it's an equal understanding of the word all. And so all would actually refer to all people and not just people who have actively chosen to step into uh, salvation or to draw closer to Jesus for salvation. Uh, so they would just say that all actually means all of humanity.
0: Yeah. And it kind of depends on where you fit in Christ in that statement in your English translation. Because right. when you look at the Greek uh, sentence, the, the words are all jumbled up and you have to put them in order in English based on you know grammatical cues and things like that. But if you just look at this verse in isolation, you could take it you know one way. All who are in Christ are made alive. Or you can say all are made alive by Christ. And that seems like a small distinction, but basically that's what they're doing to kind of change the whole meaning of it. That all who are in Christ, that all who have placed their faith in Christ, those are the ones that will be made alive. Or the other one is that everyone will be made alive by Christ, whether or not they put their faith in him Mm -hmm. or not.
1: Yeah. And another verse is Colossians one verse 19 through 20. Sorry, that's actually two verses. It says, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So this verse would suggest that, or actually state, that Jesus will reconcile everything and everyone to himself by the blood of the cross. And so Everyone gets to partake in the benefits of Jesus going to the cross. So his death and resurrection was for all of humanity. Again, because of God's love for humanity, this is what he did for humanity as a whole.
0: Yeah, and then another one, a very similar uh, verse is Romans 5.18. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adams, the the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus's, the many will be made righteous. And so, they're kind of taking that the same way as the first Corinthians one. Mm-hmm. They're kind of parallel passages. Um, and so, all the all the same points apply. And kind of a... A difficult one for the Universalists to get around are those ones in Revelation. Yeah. Is that one in Matthew 25, eternal Mm -hmm. uh, life and eternal punishment. And there aren't really good answers for those. I mean, the the Revelation (laughs) one, you can kind of get around a little bit on this one. Because of the language. Because you can say like, well...
1: Well, it's a revelation. We don't really know what it means anyways.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but the Matthew one seems pretty Mm -hmm. clear that there is an eternal life and there is an eternal punishment. The only difference is the nature of that punishment. But then again, they go back to that word Ionios. It's not eternal in the sense of going on forever. It is eternal in the sense of lasting for an age. So there you have the universalist view. And then the view that I think is very interesting, is one that lands somewhere in the middle between these two views. And this view is called annihilationism. Uh, For some, uh, such as Preston Sprinkle, they prefer to call it terminal punishment or conditional immortality. And there's actually a fair number of people who hold to this annihilationist view um, that basically says that eternal life is conditional upon your faith in Jesus and that if you don't have eternal life, you have eternal death, which is basically non-existence. It's it's annihilation. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of prominent people that actually hold to this. And one is John Stott and actually many other Anglicans. And if you don't know about John Stott, John Stott is like Mr. Evangelical. Yeah, Like he's not on the fringes of evangelicalism. Uh, he's a voice that many of us have looked to within the evangelical tradition, um, and he writes about this in uh, Evangelical Essentials, uh, Liberal Evangelical Dialogue, and uh, we'll link to that in the show notes, along with the other blog posts and, and books that we've been drawing from for, for resources. So John Stott's a big one. Uh, another one is F.F. Bruce, who is, again, like another Mr. Evangelical uh, Bible scholar, Bible commentator, and he doesn't hold to it, or he didn't hold to it, uh, but he called it an acceptable interpretation, but he kind of remained agnostic to it. Uh, the entire denomination of Seventh-day Adventists hold to it. Uh, Preston Sprinkle, who's done a, a lot of writing on this, and we're quoting him a lot when we're explaining some of these views, uh, he hasn't com- like completely come out and affirm it, at least unless he's done it recently. Um. But he seems to make a pretty compelling case for it, for the stuff that I've read of his. Uh, Chris Date is another one who's been an influential voice. Uh, He has a website called Rethinking Hell, I think it's what it's called. Um, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, um, seemed to imply it in some of his sermons. I don't think he actually came out and articulated it in such a way. Um, But he seemed to imply it. And then there's actually really like early church fathers who had explained hell in terms of an annihilationist view. And those include Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Arnobius was the first one to really kind of systemize the idea in the fourth century. So that's a long list. of na- So like these aren't right. nobody names of people that hold to this view
1: that maybe you've never heard of before.
0: I mean, but like (laughs) of all those names, like hopefully there's like maybe like one you're like, oh, that name sounds kind of familiar. Right. But um, if you kind of go look up those names, like these are really like respected, looked to voices throughout the history of evangelicalism and the history of the church at large, going all the way back to, you know, these early church fathers, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Irenaeus going back to the third century. And so this is a really old view. um, And it's been a minority view a lot of the time. But Uh, It's been held by some really trustworthy voices.
1: Yeah, and some of their guiding principles would be that the human soul is not eternal. So this is different than eternal conscious torment because the view there is that the soul is eternal. According to this view, they would say that the soul is actually not eternal.
0: Right, it's not intrinsically eternal. Right. Like the soul has a start date and an end date naturally.
1: Mm -hmm. But eternal life is a gift of grace that can be found in Jesus. So because of Jesus, you then get to have this gift of eternal life as opposed to the soul having always existed eternally in, in terms of it goes on forever. And because of that, there wouldn't be eternal death. You would only receive eternal life.
0: Well, there would be eternal death. There wouldn't be eternal conscious torment.
1: Right. Yes. Thank you. Like you you die and you stay dead forever. You die and you stay dead forever. So you're not coming back to life. Yes. But the idea is that you would have eternal life only if you were in Christ and you have it as a gift that you continue to be alive with Christ for eternity versus those who are not in Christ. They would just die and cease to exist.
0: Yeah, and I think kind of the guiding idea behind this one is that the intrinsically eternal soul was kind of a platonic idea that um, was really imported into Christian theology that the human soul is intrinsically eternal, which may or may not have existed um, in the mind of the people who are writing scripture. And when we look at the Old Testament, it seems like maybe it wasn't in their mind. Uh, whenever you read about death in the Old Testament, they talk about going down to Sheol, which means like the pit. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of like this sense of lifelessness after death. Um, and you look at even Paul's metaphor the those who have fallen asleep, that it doesn't seem to be this kind of you know, living kind of a thing. And that's why the resurrection was so important because you're going to be raised back to Mm -hmm. an eternal life. Mm -hmm. You have fallen asleep, but you won't stay dead forever because you'll be raised to an eternal life in Jesus. And so it kind of seems to jibe with that. And another part of it too, is that if eternal conscious torment is about punishment, then terminal punishment or conditional immortality is more about justice. If that distinction makes sense.
1: It does because if the goal is punishment, then obviously the best form of punishment is just do it forever. Yes, to just keep doing it forever and ever. But if the goal is justice, then you don't necessarily need to continue to punish someone forever and ever. There is a time of justice, and the day of judgment will come where those who are not in Christ will receive judgment. And that this view is holding to that and saying, yeah, certainly they will be held accountable, there will be judgment, but it doesn't necessarily mean an ongoing state of torment that will never end. There is a timeline of when judgment will occur, and then those people would just cease to exist after that.
0: Yeah, and what's more is that when we just take a look at the words that the New Testament uses most... When referring to eternal judgment.
1: Well, the final judgment, right?
0: Yeah, eternal judgment, final judgment. Yeah. Yeah, the judgment that endures forever. I guess, yeah,
1: there wouldn't be a judgment after that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's it. That's the it end is of
0: judgment. The, yeah, the one that stands eternally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting the words that are used. Destruction and perish occur a lot uh, in Matthew and John and Acts and Romans and Philippians. In Second Thessalonians and First Timothy, in Hebrews, in Second Peter, in First uh, Thessalonians, and uh, these words of destruction and perish, those don't seem to imply an ongoing, eternal conscious torment. Another word, death, thanatos, used in Romans uh, about four different times, First Corinthians a couple of times, Second Corinthians, James, First John, and in Revelation it's interesting, in Revelation, hmm. it talks about being thrown into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Right. And death is death. Death is not life where you're being tortured.
1: Right. Like there's an end.
0: Yeah. Which is the other word, end. Yes. Telos, <laughs> which is used in Romans a couple times in second Corinthians, uh, Philippians, and in first Peter. And then there's this other word uh, that refers to disintegration or corruption would be kind of the English translation of it, and that's hmm. uh, in Galatians, and then twice in Second Peter. And so all these words point to an end of a judgment. It's finality, rather than an ongoing expression of it. Just looking at the words that are used the most uh, and that are used often.
1: Yeah, and there's even more imagery that we can see within the New Testament that would really reflect this idea of an end to... A time period, the end of this judgment that happens and death, like a finality to it, rather than something that is ongoing. And some of those um, places of imagery we can find are in the New Testament, Matthew and John, where it talks about the burned up chaff and the trees and the weeds and the branches, like those things are getting burned up. We don't see them continuing to exist. Like they're done, they're burned. And also a destroying of a house discarded fish uprooted plant chopped down tree in matthew and in luke and the day of judgment is compared to the old testament example of the flood and that is this idea of destruction like there's an end to it also in sodom and gomorrah which we had referenced before where it burned and it no longer exists today and we also have this idea of the wicked compared to ground up powder or someone who was cut to pieces. And all of these imageries show us that there is an end at some point.
0: Yeah. And so Paul talks about this in First Corinthians 15 verses 21 through 23. And we read one of these verses a little bit earlier in support of universalism, I believe it was. But if we reread it, through this lens, it, it can take on a bit of a different flavor. It says, For since death came through a man, and resurrection from the death also comes through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his turn. Christ is the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And so the idea here is, if you're looking at this from a terminal punishment kind of point of view, annihilationist view, is that immortality is not inherent to the human experience, It's only in Jesus that we have hope beyond the grave for anything, anything good, anything bad. There's just, there is nothing beyond the grave apart from Jesus. And the reason that we know that is because Jesus is raised up to an incorruptible life. And therefore we will be raised up to an incorruptible life. Otherwise we would stay dead. We would be raised for the final judgment and then we would stay dead. Um, and, and he goes on later in this chapter to say death has been swallowed up in victory. And so there seems to be this idea that's in line with the Old Testament writer's understanding of the afterlife that they commonly you know, refer to it as the pit where you go and you're dead. That seems to be the understanding. And, and the, the breakthrough, the, the complete change is not that, that Jesus is saving you from a punishment that he himself is going to inflict on you is that he's saving you from the abyss of death that you were destined to, um, which is the judgment for your sins. And yet you are going to be raised to life in him.
1: Yeah, we see a, a very similar understanding in 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. It says, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this is really that understanding that apart from Jesus, there was only death. Death was the only option. But because of Jesus, we now have an opportunity. We now have this gift of immortality that will only exist when you are within Jesus. So immortality did not exist apart from Jesus, whether... That was immortality in terms of being with Jesus or immortality being in an eternal state of punishment and torment. So this verse would suggest the only option was death. But Jesus, again, brought this gift of immortality that wouldn't have existed apart from him.
0: And this even kind of goes back to the uh, Genesis chapters one and three to kind of go right back to the beginning where they're placed in the garden and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one they weren't supposed to eat, but they did eat. And then there's a the tree of life. And then once they, they sin and they fall, God expels them from the garden of Eden. And he makes sure that they can't eat from the tree of life lest they live forever in their sinfulness. And it, and if you kind of project that idea out mm-hmm. that Being connected to Jesus is being connected to the tree of life. And if you are not connected to Jesus, then you will perish. You will waste away and you will die. And so that can kind of become the the framework for how you understand really the afterlife and, and the eternal state. That after the final judgment, those who are in Christ are connected to the tree of life. And those who are not in Christ are not connected to the tree of life, kind of bringing it full circle Mm -hmm. all the way back to Genesis.
1: Yeah. And so it's actually not too much of a stretch to suggest that this view has some solid ground to stand on. And again, like we referenced in the beginning of this podcast, uh, at least for both Dale and I, the understanding of hell as an eternal state of torment, of conscious torment, was the only option that we ever knew of. And so once we really look into this last one, it does seem like there are some biblical references, biblical verses that you can go to and see how this view is viable. This is certainly an option. And it's certainly something that you could hold to and you wouldn't be outside of the bounds of scripture.
0: Yes. I mean, so we hope that's been helpful to you in some way. For me, it was extremely helpful to learn that the view that I was raised up in isn't the only view and that it's okay to maybe explore some of these other views. Of course, holding scripture in a high regard and not wanting to do flips and flops and gymnastics and make the text say what I want it to say, but really actually look at it. And, Uh, evaluate what, to the best of my knowledge and the best of my studies, we think it's saying, and then also um, how that jibes with how I understand the character of God and -hmm. and my theology based on how I read the whole of scripture, Uh, and then to assimilate back into kind of a fully orbed understanding of what I think hell is about.
1: And so there's certainly a whole lot of misconceptions when it comes to heaven and hell. <laughs> like, both of those places we are all very curious about. And
0: I'm looking forward to the chocolate fountains, you know? Yeah. I don't and even the eat chocolate, mansions. but, like, just... And
1: the football field. Yeah, the big, big house love, with lots and lots of room. We love football fields. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I heard somebody pray the other day, like, Lord, I am so thankful that there's going to be a mansion waiting for me in heaven. And I was like... Mm.
0: <laughs> and that there's going to be a big, big yard where okay. we can play football,
1: or the idea that like I'm going to eat everything I want and never get fat. Just okay, yep. That's <laughs> that's what we see in scriptures. Like, what about
0: like the whole like glory of Jesus thing? <laughs> like we're forgetting about that.
1: Yeah, we're forgetting like eh, Jesus. I think I would enjoy heaven with or without him. <laughs> that's. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so maybe we'll do like a maybe a how heaven, many how many views heaven on heaven
1: series, a heaven series would be good
0: and then yeah I feel like we should do one like on the devil too mm. we didn't even touch on like for when much of we talked about hell we didn't fun. even talk about the devil.
1: Yeah. yeah that'd be lots <laughs> of fun it'd
0: be, it'd be so much fun to talk about the devil well you can let us know what <laughs> thing you want us to talk about and to mess up whatever childhood notions you had about <laughs> it and to burst your bubble and hopefully expand your horizon and, uh, help you to think critically, uh, about what you're reading in scripture.
1: Thanks for listening to the Hearn Him podcast.
0: If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week.
1: Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs and other helpful resources.
0: We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com.
1: Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Hi, friend. Are you stressed?